Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I'm Dan Smolin. I built a successful executive career in marketing and communications before becoming a top headhunter and founding my own executive search firm. Now get this, every day, mainstream media run stories in which old school bosses and thought leaders frame your work and workplace issues in ways that are often divisive and unmeaningful. And that's just crazy. The time has come for you to answer the question, what's your work fit? so that your work and career fit who you are, how you want to live, and what you want your lasting contributions to be. What's your work fit? It answers your questions and tackles the issues that keep you up at night about advancing your career in this time of workplace revolution. So let's get started. Hey, good day, everyone. Dan Smolin here from What's Your Work Fit? And from today's What's Your Work Fit in the Workplace series show, it's a live show. And on behalf of uh, everyone here, I want to thank our audience for helping us to get the word out about What's Your Work Fit. We cannot do this show without you. So we appreciate your loyalty, your support. If you haven't done so already, I'm asking you to join up with us on the platform of your choice. We're on LinkedIn. You can go to our What's Your Work Fit LinkedIn page and hit the magic button and you won't miss any upcoming events or notices. You can do the same on Facebook Live and of course on our What's Your Work Fit YouTube page you can subscribe there with the big black oval button. Okay. Happy uh, Valentine's Day to everyone out there and the women in my life. My mom, Reva, who turned 94 last week. My wife, Marsha, who I will be married to 40 years in November. And last but not least, my daughter, Darren, who's down in Richmond. I love all of you. Um, 
our co-host friend Saley wanted me to bring flowers today, but you know, the problem with flowers is especially roses is after a week they die, but why not a box of chocolates? <laughs> they never go bad. <laughs> they give lots of love. Um, very quickly they outgrow this box. I hope everybody out there is having a wonderful, um, Valentine's day. And, um, May it uh, bring you lots of joy and love in the year ahead. Okay, I am so excited about our show today. I'm going to introduce our guest. His name is Phil Mobley. Hi, Phil. How are you? Hi, Dan. I'm doing okay. Going to uh, do a little in the air. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, Phil comes to us from Boston. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Phil. Phil is the national director for office analytics at CoStar Group which is the leading provider of commercial real estate information, analytics, and online marketplaces. Sounds like a great gig. It's a lot of fun, uh, especially now. There's just so much going on in the sector. It's so dynamic. So yeah, I enjoy it a lot. Well, I'm going to bring in our co-host now. First off, welcome Mark Gilbreth. Hi, Mark. Good morning, Dan. Hey, Phil. Good to have you with us today. Mark hey, is... Mark. I'm sorry to mean to step on you. Mark is, of course, the founder and skipper of Liquid Space. And also, we want to bring in our other co-host, Fran Saley. Hey, Fran. Hey, Dan. How are you? And hi, hi Phil. Great to be with you today. Uh, if, if you haven't uh, seen Fran's posts on LinkedIn, they are a must-read always. He is the leading thought leader in uh, future of work and workplace. And he would love to have you follow him. Well, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far, but uh, okay. a lot of good people out there. So. A lot of good people out there. Okay, uh, gentlemen, Phil, let's get to this lead question, which the three of us have for you, which is what happens to office leases in 2024? Let's get started. What are your thoughts on this? Sure. Well, I'll give you the short answer. Um, and then I think there's a longer answer. So the short answer is, I think what happens in 24 is the same thing that happens in 23. Mm -hmm. um, but to kind of justify that, why don't we why don't we go to the first slide and I'll kind of give some background on on why that's our point of view at CoStar. Um, so the, the first thing that I like to, uh, to sort of point out is that th this time really is different. If you look at the three major office recessions of this millennium uh, on the left in the blue there, You've got the dot-com crash in uh, 2000, 2001. And so what we're displaying here is what we call negative absorption. So absorption is just move-ins minus move-outs. It's the change in occupancy over a given period of time. And so in the five quarters or so that absorption was negative in mm -hmm. the dot-com crash, cumulatively, we lost about 75-odd million square feet of office occupancy. Wow. Um, yeah. And then cool. in the Great Recession, which uh, which lasted a quarter longer, we didn't lose quite as much. We lost about 50. Um, but then in the four years, so it's it's almost four complete years since, uh, you know, March of 2020 when the pandemic hit. That's worth 200 million. Um, so it, it really is different. It's a different in magnitude and it's also different in character. So the thing about those those first two, the dot com crash, and then the Great Recession, is that um, 
absorption, so occupancy actually started increasing again before all the jobs came back. You know, job growth became less negative and already companies started taking on more space. Well, that hasn't happened this time. We're actually uh, back on employment trend, uh, well above the level we were before, you know, two and a half billion office using workers lost their job in six weeks in mm. 2020. But all those jobs plus some are back. And so if you go to the next slide, I'll show you kind of what that looks like. Uh, <laughs> you look on the left here. So the blue is if we had started at the end of 2019 and employment had kept growing at the same rate for the last four years. Mm -hmm. the blue shows where we would expect to be, and the red shows where we actually are on the left side. So we're right where we would have expected to be, about a percent and a half a year, 6% um, above the number of jobs that we had in 2019. On the right is occupancy. So occupancy in the 2010s had been growing about half the rate of employment, um, which is interesting. It means we were already densifying. We were using less space per worker, so we were... Mm -hmm. Employment was growing faster than occupancy, but it was still growing. They were growing together. Well, now we've actually cumulatively lost, you know, two and a half percent of, of inventory. Um, and we would have expected to have gained that much. So in, in square footage terms, we've lost that 200 million, which is uh, for a frame of reference, a little bigger than the entire office inventory of San Francisco. Oh, my gosh. Um, Depending wow. on your assumptions, if you take that plus what we expect that we should have gained or, you know, under air quote, <clears throat> normal circumstances, you can more or less double that. So then you're talking about something that looks more like Los Angeles. Um, wow. So th this is different in both magnitude and in quality, I think, than what we've seen certainly in the last, you know, 20, 25 years. Um, so then, then to really get into the answer to your question, what's going to happen with leasing? So the next slide shows what has happened. Uh, over the past 10 years or so. So the, this is a little complicated because I, I love me a good line chart, but the blue line here is total leasing volume. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, we, we calculate that in square foot, square feet, but I've got that indexed to the end of 2014. Um, and then the red line is the number of lease transactions. And then the yellow line is the average size. So if you follow the blue line first, then what you see is that uh, in 2020, volume plummeted. That makes sense. It recovered in 21, 22, and then in 23, it fell off again. And it ended up kind of, you know, around 12% below that long run average or about where it was in 24. Um, interestingly, mm -hmm. the number of lease transactions is actually higher than that long run average. Uh, a little lower maybe than 2016 or 17, but, you know, above what it was in 2019. And so if if the number of transactions is going up, but the total amount of space lease is going down, what that means is that companies are taking on smaller space commitments. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's the yellow line, uh, which is the average size per lease, which is about 20% below what it was in 2014. So that was really consistent, uh, really, if you go all the way back to like Q4 of 22. Mm -hmm. We had this consistent pattern of you know, a lot of tenants in the market, but their space requirements were smaller. Um, and so that brought the average size down, which in turn brought volume down. That was consistent all last year. And we expect that to continue um, for a couple of reasons. One is that we're about halfway through the churning of the leases executed before 2020. So we've got, you know, high 40s percent of those left, uh, about half of which are rolling or set to roll in the next couple of years. So we think that, you know, companies are sort of responding to, 
the market conditions as they currently exist. Uh, and we think we, they will continue to do that. And if you go to the next slide, there's a there's a tell, right? And it's like a poker game. You know, the tell is that the tenants have already put twice as much inventory on the sublease market as was there on uh, uh, the end of 2019. So it, it looks like that has peaked. It actually came down a little toward the mm -hmm. end of last year, but we're still at 2x what we were, uh, you know, 200 plus million square feet available for sublease. Uh, a lot of which is already vacant. So, you know, this is this is the the canary in the coal mine that a lot of these tenants we think are going to continue doing what tenants did in 23, which is to reduce their space commitments. Um, now, this isn't going to happen evenly. It hasn't been mm -hmm. happening evenly. So if you go forward one more, Dan, um, the first at the market level uh, on the on the horizontal axis so the further to the right a market is on this chart then the more uh, exposed they are to the information sector and the information sector is the government bureau of labor statistics category where most of the big tech companies um you know microsoft and meta and costar we're all information sector companies um so more exposure to the technology sector means more negative absorption, more occupancy loss. And this is just in the last year. So this is not cumulative, but just so San Francisco last year lost 5% of its inventory and in occupancy, which is just, it's staggering. Yeah, it, it is really staggering. Is. And you can see that they're an outlier, you know, um, but, but the, tr the trend is there. And another way that this is not happening evenly is, you know, there really is something to the downtown versus suburban. So if you mm -hmm. go one one more forward, I'll kind of illustrate that. Um, okay. Back to cumulative occupancy losses now. So downtown CBD, central business districts, have lost about 5% of office occupancy uh, since the beginning of Q2 2020. Um, and then, so we actually split this up three ways. So urban would be other urbanized areas that are not quite downtown. So think about... <laughs> a lot of New Jersey or Brooklyn or, or something like that. That's wow. can't really call it suburban, but it's also not downtown Manhattan. So um, downtown and urban each are about 25% of inventory. Um, and so the downtown's done worse followed by urban. And then the, the other half of office inventory is suburban. So in absolute terms, the occupancy losses in the suburbs have been almost as big as everywhere else. But in relative terms, it's only about 1% of inventory, only about 1%. I mean, that's catastrophic in any other uh, office downturn. But, you know, the suburbs have uh, have performed, I guess, less poorly. Mm -hmm. And then finally, um, in terms of how this is playing out and we think will continue to play out is there's there's been a lot of ink spilled about this notion of flight to quality. Um and I think that in the way that we traditionally think of quality, that's actually not true. Uh, if you define quality in a somewhat different way, then I think it is true. So uh, the color codes you see here, the blue is what we call at CoStar one and two star. So this would be kind of like your class C and below level properties. Um, we use a star rating system that's intended to be kind of location agnostic and remove mm. some of those, those uh, connotations. But um, and then the red bars are the three star, which is like your B minus. And then four star, um, you know, A to B plus. And then five star is like six or 7% of inventory at the top. That's your trophy, right? 
Um, and interestingly, if you look at when buildings were constructed, when they were delivered, so anything that was delivered before 2020, regardless of its quality rating, whether it's a trophy product or whether it's um, you know a class C product, um, they've all lost occupancy. But if it's been newly constructed, so built since 2020, then they've all gained occupancy. And this is, you know, it's, it's lease up, right? It's uh, tenants moving in upon completion of the building. And that 15%, you know, positive absorption looks pretty good, but that's about half what we would normally have seen. So even in these new spaces, um, they are getting filled up, but it's taking longer than historically it would have. So if you define quality as new, um, then sort of regardless of the level of that quality, um, then new is certainly performing better. But uh, if you define quality as uh, in a more traditional sense of, you know, uh, amenities and location and whatnot, then um, mm -hmm. we haven't really seen what you would traditionally think of as a flight to quality. So there's a lot of nuance in the way this is uh, playing out. But I think the short answer to your opening question is we, right. we expect more of the same with a, maybe a, a large number of leases or a comparable to normal number of leases, but tenants in general taking on less space, committing to less. So for our audience, I just want to say you may have had a little bit of difficulty reading the charts on your screen. And what we're going to do is provide in the show notes for this uh, live show, a PDF of Phil's entire presentation so that you can look at it and perhaps even follow along with um, a replay of this live show. Uh, really phenomenal uh, deck there, Phil. Um, I want to continue the questioning with Mark. What do you got? Uh, thanks, Dan. Uh, Phil, CRE leaders, corporate real estate leaders, are under enormous pressure. Uh, we, we see a lot of ink spilt around that as well uh, to consider, you know, cost rationalizations in their portfolios. Um, and, and a lot of the conversations we're hearing in the market are that, you know, some are advocating for, you know, aggressive downsizing to achieve those cost reduction, you know, goals set by their CFOs and CEOs, while while others are hesitating and pausing, fearing that, you know, by, by cutting back on that portfolio too much, they might disrupt productivity or they might erode the culture. Given CoStar's sort of lens into market data, unrivaled, uh, what hot take or insight can you offer to help those leaders, those CRE leaders with their sort of finger on the, the, the lease renewal decision uh, to help them navigate the uncertainty of the moment and make, you know, more informed decisions that, you know, balance cost savings versus, you know, culture or future proofing of their portfolio for possible recovery and in, in attendance. What, 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 what's the, what's the hot take you might offer up on that front? Yeah. So, I mean, what I would say is if you think back to that, <clears throat> that trend that we used to call densification, it doesn't, a term doesn't make sense anymore because um, offices don't necessarily feel dense, but we used to call densification, meaning we were occupying less space per worker. Um, and that was a trend that was uh, consistent throughout the 2010s. Mm -hmm. And then it was de facto accelerated when, um, you know, a lot of companies did and have trimmed their footprints in the last four years. Uh, so it, you asked for a hot take. Here it is. I think this this behavior we're seeing in the leasing market now actually has more to do with that trend than it does with hybrid per se. Um, now, 
Hmm. That's not to say that what we're seeing with uh, changing workplace arrangements is not a crucial factor because it, it clearly is the crucial factor. But what seems to be happening is, um, you know, if you had asked a workplace consultant or architect in 2018 to come look at your space and evaluate it and your efficiency, whatnot, they would have told you, I can save you conservatively 15 to 20% and aggressively 40%. Right. Um, and that was before everyone was paying attention to, you know, attendance, utilization, what, what have you. Well, now everyone's paying attention to that, right? And so those tech companies that were growing 20% a year in 2017 and, and took on 10 floors in a trophy tower in San Francisco, filled seven of them and said, we're just, we're going to grow into these other three. Um, by the way, those were the most expensive rates ever, right? Um, certainly on an effective basis. Uh, well, guess where a lot of that space is now? It's in that sublease figure. Uh, so, so I think the, the reality is that a lot of organizations were inefficient with their space use before 2020. And now, you know, when the leases come up for space that they haven't been using, certainly not fully, then yeah, they're, they're going to cut it back. They're going to give up buildings and consolidate. They're going to reduce from seven floors to five. Um, is what seems to be happening is smaller companies are rather than renewing, like they maybe traditionally would have, they're picking up and moving to a, a, a nicer building and they may take the same or even slightly more space, but it's, it's not really a positive, uh, occupancy event for the market. It's kind of a, uh, a, a normal or, or even negative, you know, certainly for the one they left. So this focus on being efficient. Because uh, we are seeing a, some more layoffs, but by mm -hmm. and large, companies are hanging on. Certainly, over the last year, you know, the information sector, the tech companies are largely flat since kind of May of last year. Uh, the other major office-using sectors are nominally positive, so we haven't seen massive layoffs. Um, it looks like companies are preferring to try to hold on to their talent that they worked hard to recruit in the last mm -hmm. three, four years. Um, and then looking at real estate as one of those cost cutting opportunities. Thanks, Phil. So we're going to get to Fran in a second. I wanted to ask you about the, um, the aversion to renewing a leasehold and maybe going elsewhere. Is it sort of like the trick with credit cards where you make it a, you know, a low introductory rate from a, another bar, a, another uh, trade line rather than stay with what you got? Phil? I think that's part of it. Um, there's a couple things going on with that preference for new space that I alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. One is that there is a belief in the market, in the occupier market, that uh, to attract and retain talent, and certainly if I want them physically present together for collaboration, then what I need is the best space that's you know, um, it's got all the uh, lead certifications, it's got the amenities, it's got the transit access, it's well located, it's in the hip part of town. Um, mm -hmm. So that is definitely at play. Uh, and I think what's also at play that's, that's not disconnected from that is when you move into newly built space, you'll typically get some funding from the landlord to help build it out. 
especially now. So we, we've actually seen a phenomenon over the last four years where the the face rents, the asking rents have largely held flat. They dipped a little in 2020 and then kind of came back up, but they're about where they were at the end of 2019. But what's happened is the value of, of lease concessions, which is either you know a period of free rent and or uh, an allowance to build out the space. Mm-hmm. The value of those has gone way up. So, you know, you might think in 2018, you'd get 20, depending on the market, 20% of the value of the lease in concessions. Well, now 30, you know, 35, maybe. Uh, there's a, a lot of uh, variability there, obviously. But, you know, that is attractive to tenants when they're thinking about, okay, my office is now something that I need to use efficiently and effectively. It's got to engage my workers. It's got to attract them. You know, I don't really have a stance on whether that's all true, but it's definitely true that it's a belief in the market um, that's that's being acted on. So I think that's that's one of the dynamics that we're seeing with this less likelihood to renew in place and greater likelihood to seek out something that uh, that we think is going to work better. Fran? Uh, thanks, Dan. Uh, Phil, this is I, so actually I had a question, my first question written down, but I sort of changed it into a two-part question. Um, and, and this is, I just want to get your opinion about what is very commonly discussed in the, in the business today as occupancy and the measures of occupancy. We've all seen the uh, castle stuff, and there are some similar um, uh, uh, measures that that have trended to show, or said they've been similar, but they've been showing occupancy uh, at about fifty percent, roughly, of the leased space. Um, and we know that, that a lot of that is is um, determined by badge data, uh, sometimes one way, sometimes two way. But you know, you can come in badge in, have a cup of coffee, and leave. It doesn't mean very much. Um, there are some firms that have you know, sensors uh, distributed and, and are able to get very granular in the actual utilization of the space. And if you look at their numbers, which I presume are a little more accurate uh, in terms of how much is actually being used, it's much smaller than that. Um, you know, somewhere in the 20, 25% range or less uh, for some uh, some occupiers. So, uh, and, and this goes to the heart of the real question I was going to ask, which is um, we see um, the Sam Zells of, 2024 out now trying to steal buildings at 50% of their old value. God bless us all. Uh, uh, <laughs> and they're assuming that, you know, this cycle is going to be a little longer, a little deeper, but it's going to come back. Um, but there are some t- that say we really can't see the bottom yet. So two part question there. What's your sense of the occupancy data and is it meaningful to you? And, and what, I assume you don't track that stuff. Um, uh, uh, for a number of reasons, but the, what do, what should occupiers think about occupancy today? And the second question, how does that relate to the valuation situation and the floor of values in this cycle, which, as you said earlier, is different than any other cycle you've been involved in? Good question, Fran. Yeah, so, uh, so first, a clarification. I'm very glad you asked this question. Um, I've been using the term occupancy in a very strict sense, uh, which is, you know, the co-star sense, which is that we consider space occupied if it is physically controlled by the tenant or perhaps the owner who, who uses the space. Whether or not there are any physical humans in the space, you know, it's occupied if, if the organization has control of the space. Interesting. 
the the what's commonly called occupancy or uh, you know physical occupancy. We use the term attendance for that, which is has some imprecision of its own. Um, utilization is another term that you'll hear, which is really more, as you alluded to, uh, about how efficiently individual spaces within a suite might be being used. Um, but okay, let's talk about attendance. There are various measures of that, um, or at least proxy measures. One is transit data. Um, and if you look at transit data, there's a site called APTA that I've been looking at. Um, and we, we don't at CoStar have a, a proprietary measure of any of these things. Um, so we, we look elsewhere at um, kind of what sources are available to help inform our analysis. But transit data, if you look at it kind of nationally, is in the 70% range compared to 2018, 2019. Um, now, of course, not everyone who rides transit is an office worker, right? Um, there are plenty, especially in big cities, plenty of service sector workers who are riding public transit. Mm -hmm. I see some of them every day uh, coming into Boston. So I think it's a good directional measure, uh, perhaps not a, a good absolute measure. Then you get technology like uh, the Castle Systems Access Control, and there are some others that, that do similar things, um, which I think is a much better measure of who is entering the buildings where those products are installed. Um, but you do have to consider that, and, and you know, Castle, by their own admission, will say, look, we're not representative of the entire office market. We have a 10-city index, and it's uh, reporting on buildings where our product is installed. And you know, they're very upfront about that. And I respect mm -hmm. that. Uh, again, I think directionally, it's quite interesting. And uh, I think just today, they reported last week's figure at 51.8, uh, which was down slightly. I think it hit 53 last week, which was the highest. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's, that's interesting and important about that is that you got to think about what the reference point is. So the, the reference point is whatever February 2020 was, we're going to call that 100. Right. When in reality, you probably had 60, 65 percent of seats filled on any given day, if that. So, you know, 50 percent of 65 percent is what, 37, mm. uh, less than that, 33. Um, so. So, yeah, that, that, I think that's just uh, important for calibrating. And then you have things like uh, Nick Bloom's survey. Uh, Gallup has a survey that they do. So there are other ways of, of sort of estimating, you know, what's the frequency of, of attendance. Uh, but I think the reality is they're all showing something plus or minus 60-ish percent. Maybe add 10 points to that on Wednesday and take 10 or 15 away on Friday. Um, and they've all been really flat over the past year plus. Um, mm. So that's uh, one of the things that we take into account when we're forecasting, right? But we we don't see a high likelihood of a dramatic increase in attendance. I I do think it will continue to tick upwards, uh, but it's not going to ninety five percent by June uh, of what it was in twenty nineteen. Uh, so that's that's part of our outlook as well. And then so you, to your question about values um, and demand, really, it's demand driving the value. I think it is so. Our we have a, a value estimation series with a forecast, and you know it it shows 
average values down about 13% from peak and going down another until they get to about 30, uh, which would be comparable to what we see, what we saw in the Great Recession. Um, but of course, there's no such thing as the average office building, right? Mm -hmm. So if you were to buy a you know long-term single tenant net lease office building in a secondary market where the tenants there their employees are, are using the space, you know, it's going to have a, a value decline from 2021 just because of what's happened with interest rates, mm -hmm. um, presumably, unless you have an all cash buyer come in or something. Mm -hmm. um, but but it's not going to have the same sort of structural uh, valuation issue that a, a commodity class A you know, middle-sized Manhattan office tech. tower, multi-tenant yeah. is, is going to have because you, you have not only lower occupancy typically in those buildings, but you have more uncertain future occupancy. Who, who knows how long that space is going to sit vacant. Um, so we've seen buildings trading at, you know, uh, in San Francisco, especially 40, 50, 60% discounts to some wow. of their valuations around, <laughs> 2015. And the, the, the interesting thing about that is the buyers, many of the buyers who are active in the market for that kind of deal uh, and think, you know, below the sort of hundred million dollar deal. But there are there are private buyers who are writing checks for 20, 30 million dollars. Right. So they're low or no leverage. They're coming in and they're getting these values at steep discounts to their previous valuations at, at what looks like really low below replacement cost price per square foot. Does that the matter? reality is those buyers, they can sit there at 50% occupancy if they've got a lot of term left on the lease and they can cash flow that property. Right. And so, so yeah, it's like on the one hand, that's bad for values of other buildings in the market. It's going, I believe it's going to help bring them down and help them reset um, when when more liquidity returns. Um, but on the other hand, you know, some of these opportunistic private investors are probably going to be just fine, at least for a little while. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they are betting, to your point, if things really do come back, well, then it's just all upside for them, right? Mm -hmm. they fill up right. the building and then sell it at you know, let's say it recovers even halfway uh, in five years, um, you sell it for 50, 70% more than they paid for it, um, maybe more. So mm. yeah, it's, it's a really interesting time for values and it's, you've got to think about things deal by deal. Got it. So I um, want to get to some questions. The wonderful Sophie Wade chimes in and she says, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the signals coming from the market anticipating loan defaults what are your thoughts yeah so, uh yeah interestingly and happily for me i was looking at this just early today and uh our data show that we've got about 50 billion in cmbs mat maturities coming up by the end of 25. Mm. um now cmbs is a relatively small slice of the market but i, I think it's generally indicative it is a lot of those kind of major market central business district multi-tenanted buildings. Um, so it's kind of, I think, what a lot of us have in mind when we think office building. Um, the delinquency rate has certainly gone up. It was uh, 8%, uh, maybe 7.5 or so as of January. It's 
coming up into the eights now, which is, is actually is now higher than it was right in the, the throes of the early part of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that's an indicator you know, as those loans mature, not just CMBS, but as loans mature, that's where you're triggering liquidity events. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, we have, I think a lot more of those that are being extended than perhaps we anticipated six to nine months ago. Uh, some for contractual reasons. A lot of the the short term CMBS loans originated in you know twenty one twenty two had those provisions in them. Um, and some for workout reasons. You know if you do have reasonably stable occupancy and the tenants paying and you can make your debt service or or get close to it. You know even if the LTV is a little bit off. You know there's a lot of that kind of workout behavior happening. So. I don't think it's going to be, you know, the wall of maturity that triggers this immediate price crash. I do think that it is uh, a factor that's going to help liquidity improve and then reset prices over the next. uh, I think we're calling the trough right now around the end of 25. So over the next, you know, 20 months or so. Mark? Uh, New question direction, if we could, Phil. Uh, with many large employers unsure about the long-term space needs for their workforce you know, beyond you know, beyond a few quarters even, is the increasing popularity of flexible office and co-working solutions simply a short-term response to this current uncertainty? Or do you see this trend playing out in a more permanent way for the future of work and, and for you know the asset strategies of large commercial office owners? Yeah, that's there's just some uh, unassailable logic to the notion of having this third place, right? This maybe work near home solution. Um, we hear from the market participants, the brokers in the market that we talk to, that yeah, a lot of the particularly the large occupiers um, are asking for some sort of flexible solution as part of their lease deals. I heard more of that a year or so ago than I'm hearing right now, but I'm sure that's still happening. Um, and then of course you've got WeWork, which is, you know, I, I think because of its own challenges and the, and their business model, they've scared off a lot of possible would be partners for work. Uh, including lenders, including maybe landlords who might be willing to, uh, you know, give it a go themselves. It's a it's a dynamic uh, segment, and I think with market conditions the way they are, with so much available space, I think the there's just there is and is going to be a lot of experimentation. You know, I, I know that some of WeWork's competitors, for example, were eyeing some of their spaces when the uh, right around the time of their bankruptcy filing saying, yeah, I like that one. I like that one. I don't like that one. I don't like that one. Um, I know that some landlords were thinking about, okay, well, we've got 40% exposure to WeWork in this one building. So maybe we can take the, these couple floors and turn them into spec suites. Maybe we can, um, you know, keep a, put a WeWork competitor in another section of it. I mean, so they're, they're proactively thinking about that sort of thing. And I mean, this is, these are things that, you know, Jamie Hodari has said publicly uh, sure. of, of Industrious. Um, so uh, certainly that kind of thing is going on. And I, you know, 
it, it makes sense to me that this idea of I've got a downtown office and then I have a flex workspace I can get to that's maybe in a first or second ring suburb if, when I need a place to get away. That, that just makes so much sense, but I, I don't know that it's, um, you know, a sea change trend, at least that we're seeing, at least not yet. Um, you're probably closer to that than, than we are, frankly. So Maybe a quick follow-up on that, Phil. Um sort of in the context of complications, you know, for that landlord that perhaps does believe what you were just laying out, that sort of that obvious fact. And, and for that landlord or that portfolio owner that decides they, they want to create flex inventory, whether that's, you know, partnering with the Serendipity Labs or an industrious or, or building their own, they're facing some complications. You know, the, the, the current elevated interest rates and the construction costs and the depleted capital stores of many owners kind of run smack headlong into the unavoidable capital investment needed to to build out spec suites or to or to do that build out to to launch a co-working space how will those how will the availability of capital to owners interplay with the potential or the growing demand seen in the market for flex great question yeah well well i mean i think i think you really put your finger on something right because a lot of the the challenge here is about underwriting that yeah. And so if you think of it like the simplest way to do this is I am an all equity owner and I'm going to hold this building forever. Mm -hmm. And as I am experimenting with how to maximize the return on my asset, mm -hmm. I've got some available space. I'm going to, you know, put some money into it to develop the, the physical features, the amenities, the technology package, right. That, that makes that work. Um, so that's where I think, think we probably already are and, and we'll see more experimentation. Um, on the other hand, for a, a lot of owners that maybe they just, you know, in 2017, it's like, oh, this is great. WeWork's going to take half our building. <laughs> um, that's a little bit different situation. And I think convincing capital sources, e even, even in an environment when hopefully we'll see lower rates and more stability, I, I think that's still going to be pretty difficult. Um, just until until there are more proven use cases. Um, again, like I, I don't have a stance on whether it should be more difficult or not, but I think what's what's happened with the, the big brand in that particular space um, and kind of the the taint that it has now um, is going to be difficult to work through. The more different um, players you have involved in any one situation, Fran. Yeah, uh, Phil, just to follow up on this financing issue, um, you mentioned earlier that you see inducements. The rates are staying pretty much the same, the actual rental rates, but the inducements are going up, in some cases materially, which would require capital to do that. Um, where are these landlords coming up with the money to do that? Mm. Yeah, so this is my second hot take. Uh, which is, I think this, I think this is coming to an end. Um, mm -hmm. I'd describe this as, as couponing, right? Like you, you go to the grocery <laughs> store and the, the ham still costs $17, but you have a $5 coupon or, or whatever. Uh, that's a terrible analogy, but anyway, I, I think it'll at least make sense. Um, I think it is coming to an end for exactly the reason that you state is that, that, you know, if you're offering a, a TI allowance, well, somebody's got to finance that construction. If it's not the tenant, it's going to be you as the owner. Uh, you're not going to come out cash for that traditionally. Um, 
so I think the the both the costs to pay for the of the construction itself because of just general inflationary pressures, particularly in the service sector, um, but then also the financing costs, the carrying costs of that uh, have risen. And then on top of that, especially if you're looking at like a refinance event or a loan maturity event, where your rate's going to go from you know three to seven or something ridiculous like mm. that, um, then it's going to be really, really hard to keep doing that, uh, to keep eating into the value of your leases, essentially subtracting your, from your NOI, while at the same time, your requirements to cover your debt service are going up, yeah. at least in, in a cash basis, if not in a ratio basis. It's just going to be harder to do that. So uh, I think that plus all that available sublease space that tenants have largely avoided to this point, because I think a lot of that is because they, they don't actually get that build out, that custom build out, but it's that space is still out there. And then I think you have these new lower basis owners coming in um, who don't have all that pressure to cover debt service. Even if they have a loan, um, it's, it's at a, it's a lower amount because they paid less for the building. Right. But I think the combination of those factors means that we are going to see face rents start falling. Um, until, uh, and it'll be interesting because I'm actually really excited to kind of watch this play out because we've got those pressures in the short term, but we also have no new supply, uh, very little new supply. And so by the time we get to 26, 27, um, new supply is going to be like its lowest share of inventory on record. Um, so that would mm. then put upward pressure on rent. So I think we're going to have this interesting case where rents sort of fall for 12 to 18 months and then start picking back up just because it sounds a little crazy, but we're, we're going to run out of the space of the particular type of space that tenants still are demanding, which is that new inventory. Uh, we're going to run out of that in a couple of years. Is there a market in Vegas for this? Is there an app you can get? <laughs> I mean, I am well, a market I mean, analyst. I do not give investment advice. So. They'd be more excited about <laughs> this whole process if you could make money on the, the, the bet. Uh, just yeah. a, a sort of a related follow-up to the flexible space. The term we hear a lot in the workplace community, at least, is space as a service. And um, I think this, there's an awful lot of this, I think, in EMEA, uh, UK primarily, but you, it's starting to creep in here mm -hmm. as well. Uh, where the basically the tenant gets all the amenities and specific amenities that they they want, they pay for them, but they have exactly the kind of environment that they need for their space. Uh, do you see this moving the needle at all? And is it does it come out in your data in any way that we can measure? Yeah, so I think I think one way that comes out is in that preference or relative preference for new space. Although, yeah, you know, I, I think that's at least as much about. Um, new space is always popular. And what's happening now is that the old space is very unpopular. <laughs> so I, I think that's part of it as well. Um, you know, I, I've been having conversations with some of the, our local market analysts. We have a team that covers uh, most of the major markets around the country. And they've been telling me about um, whole building availabilities, right? And, and how tenants are giving those a strong look for precisely that reason that they can turn that into their own workplace that is built specifically for them. Um, 
and even if it doesn't have some of maybe the location oriented amenities they can they can put in place what they need there so i, I think that is a trend um that there there are so many of these you know 100 to 200,000 square foot buildings that are essentially entirely available and so it it is creating opportunities for for some companies great thank you so you mentioned before um about how some companies are doing all cash deals. I would imagine they're very large and they're sitting on a mountain of cash, especially if they're publicly traded. Um, if you're small and bootstrapping, your your acquisition of space is gonna be informed by the fact that you probably don't have any, any funds to spend and you're probably working um, from a home office or from some <clears throat> cobbled together deal, so to speak. My question, Phil, is do you have any insight as to what happens to Companies in the big, great middle, you know, perhaps they are through a C round of financing to go public. Um, you know, perhaps they're growing, but they, because they need that cash to invest in technology, invest in intellectual property. Do you have any insight? Does CoStar have any insight as to what happens to companies like that when they look at their uh, leasing needs? So, so here, here I think is something really interesting to think about. So as a thought experiment, go back in time seven years mm -hmm. and think about those big tech companies that were leasing extra space. Right. And think about what they were doing with the space they weren't using. Well, they were probably putting it out for sublease, depending on how long it was available or how long um, they, they thought until they would need it. So now think about who was the market for that sublease inventory. It's exactly the type of company that you just described. Mm. And so now, I think for a variety of reasons, one is in uh, you know the, the sort of like early, not very early stage, but sort of mid early stage companies. They competed like heck for talent. And one of the ways they did that was by offering flexibility. Mm -hmm. Um, their investors and their capital sources have either dried up or have gotten more expensive. So they're not as easily able to access the kind of capital to go lease a big office. Uh, so they're having to tighten their purse strings, which is keeping them out of that sublease space, right? Um, so, so I think that, yeah, their, their focus is more on running their businesses on, on talent maintenance um, and mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of triangulating this, but it, it makes sense and it, it, it lines up nicely with, well, how come a lot of this really nice class A sublease space is still available and has been sitting there for a while? And I think that's the answer is because a lot of the, on the demand side, a lot of the companies that heretofore would have taken that space are just focused elsewhere. Mm. Good point. Um, gentlemen, Phil in particular, this has been an absolutely fabulous conversation, and I hope we can get you back because this was an information-rich live show. I'm, I'm going to watch it again and again and again. I learned a lot, on, and I cannot thank you enough. Before we get to our final question to you, I'm wondering if you could point our viewers and listeners to you on social media, where they can find you, and perhaps where they can even connect up with you. Sure. I'm on uh, LinkedIn. I think it's Phil hyphen Mobley now. Um, my email address is pmobley at costar.com. 
Um, every, I, every now and then I still do tweet or post or whatever it's called now. And that's at <laughs> Filarious Rex. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay. Well, we're, we're at the, we're at the end here. And, and this is the question we ask all of our guests and it, it is, what is your work fit? What's your work fit? What attribute condition experience place or state of mind makes work a wonderful part of your day, Phil, doing many wonderful and meaningful things and not the all consuming time suck of a day. What's your work fit? Yeah, sure. So I think I am blessed in many ways to uh, be very well supported for the work I need to do, both at my office office, which is where I am now, uh, and at my home, which is where I am once a week. Um, I have private space that is tech enabled and, and lets me do what I need to do. You, know, you can see some of my kids art on the wall behind me. So I'm, uh, I'm really happy with kind of the setup. I, I think another key to this is Again, it's a blessing to me to have a long but a low stress commute. So I have about an hour train ride on a commuter rail line. Um, I am not white knuckling through traffic. Um, I am not standing on a crowded subway. I get a seat. And so that time is redeemable. And that it, it makes all the difference uh, to how I work and to how I live. So um, in the morning, um, I, I'm a practicing Christian and uh, I need a lot of practice. And so I have a routine where I will I'll read some scripture and I'll pray. And then I will, um, you know, maybe listen to a podcast, uh, sports, history, whatever. Um, and then um, maybe in the afternoon, I might finish that podcast and I might read a book. I'm reading a book right now on the history of the U.S. involvement in the Middle East, right? Because some people, that sounds terrible, well, but to me, that's really interesting. That's, so easy, that, that's easy reading. <laughs> that redeemable time that and and the discipline involved in maintaining that schedule i i think and hope it enables me to be both a better worker and then better also when i'm outside uh, of of working hours before we depart i just want to say that the uh, slide deck that phil took us through will be in, available in the show notes uh the comment section on this post on LinkedIn. I'll try to do it as well on our YouTube page. And Phil Mobley, I want to thank you for a truly um, inspiring, informative session today. And again, we'd love to get you back. Let's continue this as you uh, develop new insights on the marketplace. Thank you for being yeah, absolutely. on. Thank you for being it's, on the live show. It's been a pleasure, Dan, Fran, Mark. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you, Phil. Great show. on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.